0: Welcome to Heart of Worship Church Podcast. For more podcasts, sermon videos, daily devotions, great new worship music, and more, be sure to download our app by searching Heart of Worship Church in the App Store or Google Play or visit us online at heartofworshipchurch.com. So I I think I have a teach, but it's also a word. Because when I was praying about what he wanted me, to say he very clearly spoke and he said, tell them I'm coming, tell them I'm coming soon. So tonight I think the Holy Ghost means to stoke some coals and stir up some fires. We get so caught in semantics. We get so focused in the fight that sometimes we forget the basics of the gospel. We try to make it so much more complicated, so we grab hold, get a patent on it, and get that message that everybody wants to come and hear that we leave the basics and nobody's really standing on any foundation. And I think as Christians, as ministers, as family members, if we can come back to remembering, how did Jesus preach? He didn't fight political fights. In fact, he weeped over those who did. He said, Pray. Will you not pray with me one hour? Will you not pray with me one hour? Will you not have faith to come and pray and just teach what I told you to teach? What I've spoken, tell others. The gospel works. The problem is is we like to try everything else but. And when we bring it back to the basic gospel, we're surprised at how well it works. We're surprised at how much can get done when we have faith to cry out, Lord, come. You know, we had been praying for a couple of years back home against the abortion issue because it started, many of y'all know with a, a woman from Simsport so the Lord had put it on our heart that we had authority because it was our land, our inheritance. We, we could lay axe to the roots, so we started praying. And I found out today that actually 2008 there were 10 times less abortions in Louisiana in 2018. And that was a prayer and an intentional warfare to say no more. to believe the words of Jesus Christ that you have authority with your mouth to cry out for the God of heaven to come and actually do something, and he can do what no man can. And God had given me a dream and showed me that he was going to connect me with someone who would be able to increase the prayer and the warfare and that there would be a bigger victory. Well, not long after that, I ended up meeting Devin, and they started with the One Blood Revival, and we connected with more people to come into agreement for prayer. And so within a few months this year, crying out, casting out, calling out, simply believing the word and professing it, using the sword. The Bible says in the armor, the sword is the only attack weapon that we have. And the sword is the word of God, but it's specifically the rhema, the spoken word, allowing the Holy Spirit to speak through you in that prayer and warfare, that it literally takes down the kingdoms of the enemy. And so in that praying, we've seen since that started, such huge legislation is changing all over the nation in the area of abortion and we didn't campaign we didn't cause offense against anybody we just believed the word and we proclaimed it and we prayed it and you will see more done in the physical if you will fight it in the spiritual but when you fight it in the physical it brings detriment to the spiritual this is what happened to the zealots you know when jesus moved in to jerusalem and he was weeping and he was crying And he said, if you would have just believed and prayed out and called to me, I would have gathered you. As chicks under my wings, as a hen gathers her chicks in, I would have protected you. And he was weeping. He said, but because you missed the time of your visitation. You see, the zealots started out good. They loved God and they wanted to see their nation turned. And this is a danger that we all have to be cautious of as days get darker and things move more and more against Christianity. They became so offended and so caught up in the fight that they got polarized. And it was me against them and them against me. And we're going to make it happen till it came to the point where Jesus stepped in. The answer was there. Revival was there. He was standing right before them. All they had to do was believe and cry out and ask him. But they missed him because they were so focused on fighting a fight. They had become political. They had become the resistance. They had more faith in a physical resistance than in a spiritual reviver. And so Jesus wept over them. He said, if you would have just called to me, I would have protected you. I would have stopped it. But because you missed the time of your visitation, they're going to build a wall around you and you're going to see your children destroyed. After the crucifixion, that prophecy came true. In fact, the zealots continuing to fight Rome eventually were surrounded, overtaken, and they were so determined to do it in their own strength that they ended up killing all of their own children and their wives and committing suicide because they wouldn't just stop. And cry out. Jesus is coming. If they would have believed it, they wouldn't have taken matters into their own hands. If we truly believe it, we won't take matters into our own hands. We'll cry out, Come, Lord, come. The Bible says that we are to pray, Come. In fact, it says you are to pray for the peace of Israel. Israel's only gonna find peace when Jesus comes. So when you pray for the peace of Israel, you're praying for Jesus to come. In fact, it says our job. Is to fulfill the great commission, to preach the gospel, and to demonstrate it with our lives. Because when the gospel is preached and the people are reached, then Jesus comes. So when you do that, you're hastening the coming of the Lord. But you're also hastening resistance in the day of wrath. And so as that trial and tribulation increases, so does the temptation to push back and fight against it. But if we're praying for Jesus to come, we've got to recognize that those things will come. And that just gives us more opportunity to shine forth the light and love of Jesus in the midst of it, that we might reap a greater harvest before he comes and we run out of time. We've got to remember this is the goal. We've got to keep our focus because it's so easy to get distracted. We can miss Jesus because we get so focused on the fight but we're not fighting the right fight. Fight it in the spiritual, not in the physical. When we remember that Jesus is coming, it motivates us. God gave me this example one day, I had a friend that was coming over, it was the first time she was coming to the house and the house is clean and it's normally the way I normally clean it and then I start thinking to myself, how is she gonna see my house? How is she gonna look at it? What is she gonna notice? And so I start noticing things that I didn't notice before Maybe some dust on the ceiling fan that had accumulated slowly over time, and I I just got so used to it I didn't notice it anymore. Cobwebs in the corner that maybe I saw, but I thought I'll get to it later, and then I became blinded to it because I had seen it and excused it. But now that I knew my friend was coming, I was looking at it the way she would look at it. Was it clean enough? This is why Jesus said to live every day with the expectation that he's coming. Now, we understand there are things that will happen. We understand there are trials and tribulations. But Jesus said, you know, my mom, she's the kind of person that every time something happens in the news, this is the event that starts tribulation. And we all pick on her and laugh about it. But in actuality, that's a biblical mindset. Because one day, she's going to be right. And she's not going to miss it. <laughs> but, uh, but everybody else that's like, oh, no, no, it's not, no, it's not. One day, Jesus is going to weep over them and say, you missed the time of your visitation we are commanded to always expect his coming. Because when we know he's coming, we're going to step back and look at our life and those things that we excused before, that he pointed out to us like that cobweb in the corner, but we said, I'll deal with it later, and then we became blinded to it. We're going to see it. The dust that accumulated slowly, that offense, that pride, that arrogance. We're going to notice it. Because we're not looking at the house the way we're used to living in it. We're looking at it. How is he going to see it when he visits? It's important to remind ourselves that he's coming. And as ministers, it's important to remind the people because there's a whole generation that's really not hearing it. As family members, it's important to remind our family, to talk to our kids, to talk to our loved ones, to ask them if they're ready for it. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 26 says, that he might sanctify and cleanse the house, that he might wash it with the water of the word, that he might present it to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. He's coming back for a clean house. We let things slide in our house until we know someone's coming. Jesus said, remind them that I'm coming because I'm coming for a pure and spotless bride. And how is it washed? By the word. We have to be willing to preach the word, the full word. You've gotta be willing to open your mouth and speak no matter where you are. You know, the Bible says that in the end times, in this tribulation time, they eventually, the saints eventually overcome the enemy by the blood of Jesus, what he did, the word of their testimony, and because they were willing to fight to the death. No, because they loved not their lives unto the death. They were willing to speak the gospel even if they were killed for it or we willing to speak because that's what washes. That's what cleanses. That's what makes white. That's what prepares the bride. There are things that are good to be done, but if the foundation of the gospel isn't laid, everything else in vain, unless the Lord build the house, they that labor labor in vain. Grabbing hold on the return of Christ drives you to faithfulness, to your first love. It makes a passion in you to build that relationship with him and a diligence to maintain it. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul speaking under the unction of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit speaking through him to the church, he said, for I am jealous over you with a godly jealousy. For I have espoused you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear lest any means The serpent beguiled as he did to Eve through his subtleties, so your minds also should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he that cometh preacheth another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or if ye receive another Spirit, which ye have not received, or any other gospel, which ye have not accepted, you might well bear with it. The Holy Spirit, through Paul was weeping over the church, saying, I love you. Jesus loves you. And it's actually the Holy Spirit's job. Maybe on another night we can do a more in-depth study on the Holy Spirit's job. But in summary, his job, in, in essence, is to present the bride as chaste, virgin, and white, as holy to the bridegroom. The Holy Spirit weeps over a church that is defiled, that has been seduced by another spirit. He said, I believe that you would listen to these other spirits because you have strayed from the simplicity that is the gospel. And it breaks my heart because I see it a lot. So much going on, so much show, so much production, so much entertainment, so much manifestation, so much complication that they've strayed and been seduced. He said, the gospel is simple. Lay the foundation. Clean the house because this generation, it doesn't know it. I think those of us who are a little bit learned in the faith, it's easy to say, okay, I, I'm tired of the, the, the eggs and potatoes and meat. I, I want some little sweets. I want something more. I, I've already had that. I know the basics. I wanna go deeper. I need that word that edifies me. Until we become spiritual gluttons and we're chasing after that word that validates, that word that encourages, that word that fluffs up, that word that's that deep revelation. And we all love it. I love it too. I love deep revelation. But it's easy to forget that they're still babies. There's a lot of children out there that can't swallow it. And because they don't understand it, they just go to the performance. We have to remember to relay the foundations. Most people in our generation, do not understand the gospel. They call themselves Christian. They claim his name, but they have no idea what it really is. They don't understand the basics. They don't understand the law of sin and death. They don't understand the garden of Eden and the fall of man. They've been taught all their life that it's all just a fairy tale. They've been taught through school that it's all evolution and none of that stuff is true. How do you understand a need for a savior and redemption from the law of sin and death if you don't even understand Genesis. We've got to start from the beginning. We've got to remember and be willing to preach it. Every opportunity in school, in your house, and yes, in the churches, because even though you might think they know it, most don't. They go through the motions, but they don't know it. Reminding ourselves that Jesus is coming gives us endurance. For those of us who do have that foundation and are fighting the good fight, When you stop and step back and go back to the simplicity that preaches, he's coming, he's coming for me. I need to be ready. I need to build that love relationship. And when the enemy comes against me, it doesn't matter because this world isn't my home. I'm not staying here. I have to be ready for the king. I have to make sure that my family's ready for his coming. I have to make sure that my church isn't caught up in an antichrist system because the antichrist isn't coming to deceive the world. The world's already deceived. He's coming to deceive the church. So we've gotta make sure our people in the church understand the difference. The Bible says the purpose and the job of a preacher or a priest is to teach the people to discern between the holy and the unholy, the clean and the unclean. Because the devil, the antichrist spirit, he can counterfeit gifts. It says he comes with signs and lying wonders. He can counterfeit offices and titles and blessings and all these things. The only thing he can't counterfeit is holiness. So the bible says teach them to discern between the holy and the unholy because god says i am holy if it's not holy my daddy always says it's not god but this generation that is living today is going to be deceived because they've not been taught what's holy and what's not holy they don't know the word they don't understand something god really showed me and i I never really thought about it before you know the book of job is one of the earliest books ever written chronologically Moses wrote the book of Job, and it's believed to have been the oldest story in Scripture, probably taking place sometime right after the flood. We don't look at Job as a prophetic book, but it is. We tend to think of Jesus coming back as a modern concept, but we look at the story of Job, and we see all that he was able to endure. How was he able to endure all of the loss? He lost all of his possessions, his earthly, his material things. He lost all of his title and his notoriety, he lost his respect in his family. What made him able to endure? He had endured through the assurance that this world was not his home and he had to stay faithful because Jesus was coming. And we might not really catch that, but if you look in Job chapter 19 verse 23, Job said this. He said, "Oh that my words were now written Oh, that they were pinned in a book. That's pretty prophetic, because they are now. That they were graven with an iron pen and lead in the rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand in the latter day upon the earth. And that though after my skin, worms have destroyed this physical body, yet in my flesh shall I see God. Whom I shall see for myself and my own eyes shall behold him and not another. Though my reins be consumed within me, I shall see him. Job knew that there was a resurrection coming. He knew the Lord was coming back. And that's what gave him the endurance to withstand all of the attacks. We have a generation of people now with no sticking power, no staying power. Every little wind of doctrine that comes uproots them every little trial blows them away because they're living for the moment they're living for the physical they're living for the material they have no grasp on eternity they have no grasp that Jesus is coming I think many times we often avoid reproving sin and standing for God to keep from stirring up the devil's wrath against us but biblical Christianity actually rejoiced over it knowing that there was no greater endorsement under heaven than to be hated by hell And that it brought a greater reward at the resurrection. People live so selfishly. They're not willing to endure. They're not willing to step out in faith and take the rejection, pour out that alabaster box, be slandered, be laughed at. That one soul might be saved because they're not seeing in in the light of eternity. We spend so much time trying to build up earthly ministries, trying to build up jobs, trying to prepare for retirement that's going to last maybe 10 years, but we don't put the effort into building up a better forever. They're not being told that one day everyone's going to stand before a great white throne judgment and give an account for their life and everything that they've done, every work in the world, everything that is material and physical and every labor is going to be ash. The only thing we're going to bring into the kingdom are the souls of those who we led in. So when we stand before him, he's not going to ask, what did you bring into the kingdom? He's going to ask, who did you bring? So we could have a million dollar church with 10 million followers around the world. We can have a great title, a great job, a big house. We can do all these wonderful works. We can change laws and legislations and we can do all these mighty things. But in the end, in the light of eternity, it's all going to burn. It's not getting in he's gonna say where's the soul let me show you you passed this one up on the street corner while you were so busy running to work you passed this one up at the nursing home while you were building your big ministry on the other side of town you were called to this one you would have got this one this one was meant for you the bible actually says somebody else can wear your crown Because if I'm called to reach that person, but I'm so busy running after earthly things that I leave them there and God has to send Jessica to minister to them, she's got my crown. She'll get my reward. God actually spoke through Mordecai to Esther and he told her, you were born for such a time as this. This is your destiny. But if you keep silent now, deliverance will come for the Jews, but it'll come from somebody else and you and your father's house will be destroyed. We can miss destiny. God can pass the mantle to somebody else. That's a scary thought to me. We can miss what we were created to do. We were born for it. We were made for it. See, God's will will be done. He's going to get his way. But our place in it isn't secure. If we're not willing to do our part, and what was Esther's part? It's the same part we all have. Open your mouth. Say what he said preach the gospel. He said, if you keep silent now, I'll call somebody else to speak. You know, Catherine Kuhlman often said that she felt like she was the fifth or or seventh person that was called to that position, but nobody else was willing to open their mouth and do it and take the slander for it. She said, I don't believe I was God's first choice. I believe that there were probably five men and a few women called to do it, but I was the only one willing to do it because I didn't have anything to lose. I didn't have anything. And that's often why I think God uses the least of these. They're more willing because what do I have to lose? Nobody likes me anyway. (laughs) We've got to be willing to be eternally minded and live for the resurrection. Matthew 5 verse 11 says, Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets, that were before you, sin, you're in good company. Ye are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost his savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and trodden under foot of men. Ye are the light of the world, a city that cannot be hid. I think we get so enamored, and I, I say we, I mean generally as the church at large. I know most of us here are probably not so guilty of this, But we see it in the church at at large. And at the end of this, we're going to pray intently for the church, for the bride, for the greater body. Because I feel that God's heart really is for the bride because he's saying, I'm coming. She's not ready. She's spotted. She's filthied. She's seduced. We should be brokenhearted for the bride because she's going to miss her time of visitation. We're so eager to encourage and it's just our nature we want to uplift we want to make everybody feel good and there's a time for that the bible says there's a time and a season for everything but i think we stay so much in the spring season trying to convince everybody that it's always springtime that when winter comes they freak out they don't know what to do they think god lied to them and they say what is this i quit god didn't lie to them the counterfeit did Somebody told them that it's always blessing, it's always happy, it's always going to be what you want it to be. It's going to always be spring. The Bible says there's a time for weeping, there's a time for dying, there's a time for rejoicing, there's a time for laughter. There's a whole book in the Bible called Lamentations to show us the time of lamenting. When a nation is facing judgment, it's time for the bride to come out and weep between the porch and the altar. And cry out, Lord, let not your name be made a reproach. And it says when the bride cries out, the bridegroom steps out of his chamber. You want to know what brings revival? When the reviver steps in, what brings the reviver? When the bride cries for him. You want to know what brought Pentecost? I believe they loved Jesus. These were his followers. He had told them, I won't leave you comfortless. I'm going to go. I'm going to leave you. He spent his time with them. He ascended. They're sitting there. They're missing him. They got together and they're praying. What do you think they were praying? They were praying in one mind and one accord. They all had the same thought and anguish in their heart. What do you think that was in that moment? He had told them he was coming back. They were crying out, I love you, I miss you, please come, please come. They were in one mind. The bride was crying for the bridegroom to come. And because he promised I will not leave you comfortless, what did he do? He sent them the Holy Spirit. I think every revival in history really came this way when the bride gets desperate enough, when she loves him enough, when she's not so distracted by the counterfeits and the other lovers that she's willing to cry out and believe that he's coming. He will come. He won't leave her comfortless. The Bible says, he says he will will step down out of his chamber to meet her. But remember, he's coming for a pure and spotless bride, so we have to cleanse our house and make sure that he can hear that cry. But I think that people are so enamored with the it's going to be okay message. He always blesses you. Nothing bad ever happens. Nobody's preaching this, that you receive great blessing when you're persecuted, when men revile you. So when the first storm comes, when the problem comes, they don't stick. They fall. This is why this generation is in and out, in and out, in and out, in and out, looking for the next blessing. We've got to preach the full counsel of the gospel. And this is the word that he gave. I think it's because we all get frustrated with the state of of the church and our family and the people that aren't sticking and staying, and maybe he's giving us an area to pray to focus because there's so many marvelous things that I wanted to teach. And he said, no, just tell them I'm coming. I'm coming. Be ready. And more specifically, be willing to tell others that I'm coming. I'm not going to read it, but in the book of Hebrews, if you read chapter 11, the great heroes of faith, the whole bottom half of it is spent talking about how all these great saints endured such hardships, how they were burned, how they were beaten, how they were eaten alive by wild animals, how the women lost their husbands and they were willing to endure and be still willing to preach the full counsel of the word and how they did it that they might obtain a better resurrection. The endurance to stick it out through hardship. When the government comes against you and threatens to take your church or your building, will you stick it out? when your family hates you for it, when your church ridicules you for it because many churches don't want to hear the truth anymore. If you truly believe that Jesus is coming and you want nothing else but to please your bridegroom, you will endure. But the church is not enduring because they've not heard most of this. Reminding ourselves that Jesus is coming brings the right perspective. It reminds us that this world is not our home. And that we need to be living and making every decision for a better eternity and not a better right now when you make your decisions on what can make a better right now you will make the wrong decisions and you will do it with the best intentions but if you will live for what creates a better forever and live generationally biblically people didn't live to build their own ministry they didn't live to build their own life they lived To set up the next generation. This is why the church in America is failing. Because the devil. He's good at working on the kids. But the church. They're so busy trying to build their own kingdom. They're not working on the next generation. They're leaving them in the dust. They're standing around saying. God can't you use us. And the church is saying no. So the devil's saying I can. There's a work to be done. I hope it encourages our prayer life. I hope this kind of opens our eyes. To the state of the church. Because we we continue down our journey, sometimes we don't look back to see who we're leaving behind. And I hope that it builds a fire, especially in some of the young people here, to get out and evangelize. Everybody wants to be a a missionary to the world. Why? America's worse than the rest of the world. America's number one export in the 50s was evangelists. Today our number one export is pornography. There are more evangelists coming to America than coming from America. And we need it. It's the worst place in the world to be. And we have the most access to the word, so we're going to actually pay a higher price on the day of judgment because there's no excuse for it. And you know why? Because those people in those other countries where it's not easy, you can't sell them a bless me message. They won't believe it. They know better. They need the hope That comes by being reminded, this world isn't your home. Don't worry about that. Jesus is coming. That's why war brings revival. Now, God always brings opportunity before that because he doesn't want it to come to that. But usually we don't take that opportunity, and it ends up coming to a real war because that's what it takes to bring people into the place of desperation where they're going to pray. And as we come to a close in a minute, we're going to talk more about the power of prayer and warfare to stay the tide of judgment and to bring in the great harvest that we want to see that'll cause people to believe and remember that Jesus is coming. He's our king. There is an eternity. There is a hell. You know, most people in church, I believe today, they don't believe in hell. They don't really believe in eternity, though they say they do, but they're not living for it. They don't believe in Genesis. They don't believe in Revelations. Like, half the time I'm like, why do you claim to base your life on a faith that's based on a book you don't believe that's kind of the height of insanity? Jesus said he'd rather you just go be in the bar because at least you're not bringing confusion there. Actually, it's our fault because we know we're not taking the time to teach it, to help them to see it. And I say that generally. I know many are here, but we could do more. Remembering that Jesus coming takes away the lie of the enemy, that you need grand material things to do the greater things of God's work in the kingdom. Remember the early church, how they turned the world upside down? The Bible says they literally turned the world upside down. They spread like fire. They saw miracles, people raised from the dead. It was the greatest church the world has ever known. They didn't have a Bible. They just had praying people. They didn't have the internet. They didn't even have Facebook. How did they have ministry without Facebook? They didn't have big fancy buildings. They had house churches. They had this. And they did it because Jesus was with them. They weren't living to build a kingdom here. They were living for his coming. In fact, so much so that Paul had to correct some of them and be like, hold on, wait a minute, it's not right now. (laughs) but they were motivated. (laughs) And think about this. Not only was the first church so powerful because they weren't so distracted by all of the material things, but the final church, the tribulation church, will be just as powerful and for the same reason. When God strips away the big churches, when he strips away the stages, when he strips away the entertainment, when he strips away all of the reason the counterfeits come and take the stage, You know that when you research the Tower of Babel, you find that Nimrod, who built it, he actually built it. You know, we all hear the Sunday school story that he was trying to make his way to heaven to be with God. That's not what the story actually says. It says that he basically had the Antichrist spirit. He's the first archetype for the Antichrist because it says that the Antichrist will set himself up in the place of God, wanting to be worshipped as God. So what you really see in the story of the Tower of Babel is that Nimrod built this thing and gathered all of the people together. But if you look up the original Hebrew word there translated to tower, the word is migdal. It literally translates to elevated pulpit. He built a big stage. He built an elevated pulpit. He brought the people to it. He stood not in the heavens. He stood in the place of God wanting to be worshipped as God. It was an antichrist spirit. And many within the church are doing it today and not even realizing it. Anything that drives a desire to be seen or have attention within a ministry is motivated by an antichrist spirit because only God gets the glory in the true house so tribulation comes to strip all that away this is how God cleans house we want to be willing to clean our spiritual house ourselves because when God comes to clean house there's usually crackings of whips and flippings of tables and we don't want to have to be part of that Remembering that Jesus is coming takes away your need, your desire for vainglory. It takes away the intent of your heart to be revealed. We all want to be revealed. We want to be validated. We want to be seen. But if this is all going to burn, if this world isn't our home, then what's the point anyway? Actually, he says that if you're not seen, if you work in the secret, if you work in the humble, then you'll have a greater reward in eternity. Because when we stand before him on that final day, he's going to tell our story. And he's also going to tell the intent of our actions, why we did what we did. So we might do a great and mighty thing, but when he tells that story, is he going to reveal before all the saints and the angels that we did it because we wanted attention? Because we stepped out to reveal ourselves. and try, Now, sometimes God will reveal, and sometimes God will validate. Sometimes God will validate a messenger to validate the message. If God does it, that's one thing. If we do it, it's another what a shame that's going to be when we stand before him on the day of judgment if he tells that story. But when we're willing to obey and nobody sees and we remember, you know what? In eternity, he's going to know. He's actually going to tell that story. And what a better story is it going to be when he tells how you didn't let anybody know about it, how you did that thing in secret because you truly loved him and you loved that person. If people will live for the judgment, they'll make better decisions right now. It takes away your need to be validated and approved by men because we know that God will reveal everything then. It brings hope and comfort and peace to the righteous. If you are in right standing with God, knowing that he is coming, remembering that there is a judgment, it brings you peace and comfort because you're like, you know what? All of this anxiety, it's not going to matter in the end. I'm just going to keep trekking through. Everybody hates me because I did what he told me to do, but you know what? There's reward in the end. It brings me peace. It brings me comfort. It brings me focus. It brings urgency for the need of repentance to the compromising. If somebody knows the truth, but their house is getting dirty, they're compromising, they're in sin, and you preach the judgment, if you preach Jesus is coming if you preach this huge part of the gospel that we're not really hearing that much. It brings conviction to those who need it. And it'll bring them to repentance. It'll bring an urgency. One of the biggest problems that I see in ministering to young people is they always think they have forever. It's, oh, well, I'll, I'll get right with God, but I'll do it later. Because they never think that they can die tomorrow, which we all know anybody can die at any time. But for some reason, it's easier to have an urgency to say, well, what if you don't die? What if Jesus comes and you miss him? I can remember when I was a kid, I was I was with a friend and her mom was taking us to go eat. And there was a restaurant at a casino and she pulls up to the casino and we we go to get out. And my friend, she's like, Mom, if Jesus comes back while we're in there. We're going to get left behind. She turned around, got back in the car and we left. (laughs) Remind them, (laughs) you know. It's so easy to let things slide. But when you remember, this stuff is for real. It brings conviction to the complacent. It brings urgency. It shows us the need for the commission. We make the gospel about every other thing when we were given one commission. Go into all the world. Preach the gospel. Tell them everything whatsoever I taught you. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and I will be with you even into the ends of the world. Sometimes people are like, well, I don't feel like he's with me. I'm not seeing the miraculous. He's not validating the message. Are you preaching all of it? Because he said if you preach everything, then he'll be with you, and he'll validate it. He will validate. In fact, that's the only reason miracles come. Well, sometimes they come just out of compassion, but for the most part, they come to validate the message. And when we are willing to preach the whole message, he'll move to validate it. So we need to preach the return of Jesus. We have the generation with no endurance and no fight in them because they don't know what's coming. It's because no one is preaching the destination or the goal to them. The judgment seat, eternity, the reality of heaven and hell, damnation and reward, biblical Christianity, you know, Jesus gospel. The gospel works when you preach all of it. There's a whole generation desperately in need of it. And in reality, when you read the gospels, nearly all of Jesus's parables and teachings were specifically about his coming. If Jesus taught it and spoke so often about it, shouldn't we? And this is for me too, because it's so easy to get into other things and to go so deep that you miss the basics. We need a clean house. We need to examine our hearts. We need to get the gospel right. We need to open the word. You know, Jesus had me a while back. We can't do any better than Jesus, right? So he said, just go back to my teachings and read my teachings. And so I just began to read through the gospel, the red letter teachings of Jesus. And with the intent of comparing it to what is most commonly preached, the American gospel. And it's pretty heartbreaking. It's nowhere close. The gospel Jesus preached. And so we began this message with Paul's warning saying you are the bride of Christ and the Holy Spirit is so jealous over you, but I fear that you can be swayed away from the simplicity that is the gospel. Just like the snake beguiled Eve, in other words, you can be seduced by the antichrist spirit, looking for something more complicated, something easier. It's simple, it's not always easy, but it works. I think that in an effort to make the gospel more relevant to the world, the church has removed its effectiveness to call sinners out of the world. Because the Bible's gospel's purpose was to reprove the world of sin, not to make people comfortable in it. I tell people the truth because I know I have to give an account before God on a judgment day. I love them enough to tell them the truth, whether they like it or not. Oftentimes they don't. You step back and you continue to pray until God breaks their heart. And oftentimes they'll come back because God will continue to show them the truth. But if you were never willing to speak it, there's no hope that they can receive it. If you truly believe that we will all give account, the Bible says for every idle word spoken and also not spoken. Because if we believe in our heart, we have to confess with our mouth. If we believe in the judgment, it's gonna make us a witness. It's gonna make us willing to speak. And because I believe in where that soul is going to end up, I have to speak the truth. If we don't preach the destination, we can't complain when people don't commit to the journey. And I think that's probably the church's biggest problem. They come and they go, and preachers get weary and discouraged. And so then they start to just tell them what they want to hear. But that does more damage than good, because it doesn't play out You want to encourage the person. You want to make them feel better. But what if it wasn't the word of the Lord and it doesn't happen that way? And then they get discouraged. In fact, Jesus even told his disciples that tribulations and trials and all these hard things, they will come on you and I tell you so that you're not offended. Not so that they wouldn't be offended with the people that did it, so that they wouldn't be offended with him thinking that he had abandoned them. Even John the Baptist, when he was sitting in the prison, And he sent his disciples to ask Jesus, are you really the Messiah? Because why am I still in this prison? Jesus sent him back to say pretty much, yeah, here's the proof. Please don't be offended with me because this isn't going to turn out the way that you thought it would. Trust me, there's a bigger story in it. And then even as John the Baptist's disciples left to go tell him that, Jesus turns around and then validates John the Baptist to the people. And so now all of history gets this testimony from the mouth of God himself that there was no greater prophet ever born to woman, but John the Baptist. But John the Baptist didn't hear that validation, not in this world. Mm -hmm. He hears it at the judgment. He had to take it in faith, even though it wasn't a good and easy situation in his eyes. The way he could see it, there was a reason for it. Most people would just curse God and die now because they've not been told to endure for the reward. They don't have the endurance because of the assurance, like Job did. John 16 verse 8 says and when he the Holy Spirit is come he will reprove the world of sin and righteousness and of judgment it is the Holy Spirit's job to purify to winnow to purge to reprove the world of sin he does encourage he's a comforter but ultimately his job is to purify the bride in fact when John the Baptist told the people that Jesus was coming he said I baptize you with water, but he comes to baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. And there is a winnowing fan in his hand and he will what? Thoroughly purge his threshing floor. This is the real purpose of the Holy Spirit, the winnowing fan. And this will bring us back to the Jesus is coming. The winnowing fan, the purpose was when the wheat was gathered for the harvest, it would come and then it would be beaten with a tool called a tribulum. This is where we get the word tribulation from the tribulum or tribulation was meant to separate the chaff from the wheat, the useless stuff from the good stuff, so that the wheat could then be ground and crushed and turned into bread, which is the body of Christ. We're not even the body of Christ. Unless we've allowed ourselves to be crushed and to go through the trials and the hardships and the the tribulations that the Holy Spirit uses to purge us, and then the winnowing fan, it blows, that wind of the Holy Spirit that comes in your life. This goes back to what the Holy Spirit was saying earlier through Miss Helen's word about the oil and through her song about the alabaster box. That wind of the Holy Spirit literally comes to blow the trash away, to blow the chaff away, to blow the flesh away. All the things of this world that we want to cling to, the materialism, the pride, the arrogance, the guilt, the lust, the flesh, all of those things that are useless in eternity. That's the purpose of the Holy Spirit, not to give us a little tickle. He is a comforter when we need it but he doesn't comfort people in their sin. The counterfeit does. And this generation doesn't know how to tell the difference because they're not hearing the word. If we will preach holiness at all costs, we'll win souls. But if we don't, we've already lost the fight. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1 says, I charge thee therefore before God, And the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust, they shall heap upon themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. But watch thou in all things, endure affliction, do the work of an evangelist, make full proof of thy ministry, for I am now ready to be offered up, this is Paul speaking, and the time of my departure is at hand, this was his dying. I have fought a good fight, I have finished my course, I have kept the faith, henceforth is laid up for me a crown of righteousness." which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not me only, but unto all them also who love his appearing. Paul endured because he was living for the resurrection. We all know what it looked like when Jesus decided to clean house. When he had to do it by force, he went in with whips and flipped tables. He was brokenhearted, though. As he approached Jerusalem, he wept before he whipped, so... Don't think that gives you the justification to be arrogant or prideful jesus wept before he whipped and a person that truly has the zeal of the lord will be broken for the bride they will weep more than they whip and when he causes you to give that reproof or that hard word you will weep bitterly over it for sometimes years as you pray for that person until the lord breaks them and they're able to receive it jesus was broken for the bride but nevertheless there had to be a cleansing. And so we ask, where did this zeal of the Lord come from? Because it says that as he did this, the disciples saw that he had a zeal and they remembered the prophecy that that the zeal of the Lord's house has eaten him up. What caused him to crack the whip? What caused him to take the rejection of the people? What caused him to know that they're going to hate me for this? They're going to try to kill me for this. The Pharisees, they're not going to like this, but I'm going to go in there and I'm going to clean house. What caused him to have this zeal? In Luke chapter 19, we read it. It says, And when he was come near, he beheld the city and wept over it, saying, If thou hast known, even thou, at least in this thy day, the things which belong unto thy peace. If the church only knew the power it has, what is really available for it. But now they are hid from your eyes. For the day shall come upon thee, and thy enemies shall cast a trench about thee and compass thee round about and keep thee on every side, and shall lay thee even with the ground and thy children within thee. And they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another, because thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. And he went into the temple and began to cast out them that sold therein, and them that bought, saying unto them, it is written, my house is the house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. And he taught daily in the temple, but the chief priests and the scribes and the chief of the people sought to destroy him. The thing that gave him the zeal to go in and tear up the house was that he loved them. He loved the bride and he knew the destruction that they were bringing on themselves. Just like a father is willing to correct his children if he truly loves them because they're doing things that are destructive. And if we truly love the bride, if we love the people, if we love the church, we've gotta be willing to give those hard words. And I know it's not easy. Nobody ever wants to truly give them. But real love drives correction. And it truly does hurt the corrector more than the corrected. But love does it anyway. This is biblical Christianity. You've all heard your daddy say, this is gonna hurt me more than it hurts you. And you're like, (laughs) no, God corrects his children and it does hurt him more than it hurts us. And we still say, no. But it does. And that's another problem we have in the American church. The children have not been brought up to understand correction, so they don't really understand love. The gospel of Jesus Christ works. The American gospel doesn't work because in most part, it's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. It has fashioned for itself a God after its own making. Which breaks the first two of the Ten Commandments. But knowing that the time is so very short. Nearer now than when we first believed. We ought to have a zeal. We ought to have a brokenness. This is not the happy, exciting message I want it to bring. But I think it's something that we need to think about on our pillow. It's something that will drive us. It's something that will correct us. It's a plumb line that redirects us in the right direction because it's so easy to get distracted, to get off course. Bring it back to what he first gave you, what you first believed. Jesus is coming. Are you ready? Is your family ready? Are your friends ready? Are those around you ready? Then you have a job to do and very little time to do it. So this is a wake-up call. For all of us, we can all do more. Nahum 3.18 says, Thy shepherds slumber, O king of Assyria. Thy leaders shall dwell in the dust. Thy people is scattered upon the mountains, and no man gather them. I think the Holy Spirit is saying this to most pastors today. Let's pray for the bride to awake to the work and the warfare while it is still day. We need to lament for the loss, pick up our cross, and do the work of an evangelist. There's someone that each of us can reach. Acts chapter 20, verse 26, and this is my last passage, it says, Wherefore, I take you to record this day, and this is the words of Paul, at the end of his days when he faced his death, this was part of his final words, he said, I bear you record this day, that I am pure of the blood of all men, For I have shunned not to declare unto you all the counsel of God. Take heed, therefore, unto yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost has made you overseers to feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. Paul knew the scriptures in Ezekiel where it said that if we see someone in error or in their sin and we do not warn them and they die in their sin, then on the day of judgment, we stand before God with their blood on our hands. Paul endured a lot to speak the truth. But in the end, he was able to say, I stand clean. Because how many people have fallen away from the faith because somebody wouldn't tell them the truth or they gave them the wrong word, the wrong encouragement. And I know that sounds wrong because we all want encouragement. But if you tell somebody that God said something that he did not say, Just to make them feel better. Sometimes God's got to take you through some stuff. Like Miss Helen said earlier, it's that crushed grape, that anointing that flows. Sometimes we've got to go through the crushing because that flesh has to be broken before the anointing, before the spirit can actually flow through it. The anointing only flows, the anointing oil came from the olive. But you can't get oil out of the olive unless the olive is crushed. That flesh has to be broken. Even Jesus, before the anointing flew, that would bring the greatest work of grace the world has ever known when he knelt in the garden of Gethsemane. Do you know what Gethsemane means? The olive press. It's the place where the olive is crushed. And as he was crushed under the weight of what he had to endure to be obedient to the will of the Lord, and his sweat fell as great drops of blood, he was literally being crushed under the weight. And the anointing flew through it because he was willing to be broken for us. Are we willing to be broken sometimes for him? Or to see somebody else brought into the kingdom? We've all experienced it. I want you to be encouraged tonight that there is reward for it. But I also want you to remember it the next time the enemy tempts you to step back and not speak the truth. Because we all have a job to do. And we will give account because Jesus is coming. When we stand before Christ on that day, will we be able to say the same thing that Paul said? And I'll tell you, I'll give you a secret to the wonderful works of God. Paul was used mightily. God literally flowed through him. Just like the word that came forth, the Holy Spirit is within us. It wants to flow through us but there's two conditions given in scripture. The Bible says, purify your hearts, ye sinner, and cleanse your hands, that the king of glory might enter in. Paul just told us how to cleanse our hands. We've gotta be willing to preach the full counsel, all of it. Purifying the heart, that's the work that Jesus does. His blood, it cleanses. But the hands, that's our part. Be willing to preach the gospel. No matter what it costs us. So tonight we're going to pray. Before we pray for individual needs. We're going to minister first to the Lord. And the bride is going to cry out. Lord we cry out to you. First we come with repentance. Lord, if our heart needs cleansing, we ask that your Holy Spirit would come now, Lord, and purify our heart. Lord, we ask that you would cleanse our hands, Lord, and we commit tonight that we will speak with our mouth what we believe in our heart. We won't allow the enemy to make us afraid anymore, Lord, but we will overcome him by the blood of the Lamb, the word of our testimony And because we love not our own lives unto the death, Lord, this world, it doesn't matter. We're building a better forever, God. I pray for you to raise up a church that believes, a church that remembers that you are a bridegroom that is coming for a pure and spotless bride. God, we cry out for the church of Jesus Christ, Lord. Purify the bride. And we ask in one mind and one accord, come, Lord, come. Come, Holy Spirit. We love you, Jesus. Step in and step through. We cry out to you for the church. We cry out for this lost generation. Lord, we lift up a lamentation. Lord, we lift up a cry as the priests and the ministers of the Lord, as they weep between the porch and the altar. Lord, don't let your name be made a reproach. By the counterfeits, don't let this generation be lost to the reality of the biblical foundation. Lord, let us not get comfortable where we are blessing each other, but let us remember to war in prayer for the church because you are coming. Lord, you are coming. Lord, we know that you said you will not leave us comfortless. And when the broken come before you, You always come with comfort, Lord, but I think that the American church is so powerless because it's too comfortable. And that makes me scared, God, because I know that what happens if they're not willing to pray and cry out, you remove the comfort. Lord, we are praying for the generations. We are praying for the nations. We are praying for a mighty move of God. We are praying for a people that's not afraid to speak the gospel. God, we're praying for you to raise up young people in the schools who will preach the truth. Lord, we're not talking about militant Christianity. That's only gonna damn more souls to hell, God. We are talking about a people with a purity, a love, and a heart that says, this is what the word says. Do you believe it? Oh God, give us that foundation. It doesn't have to be complicated. Lord, teach us Genesis to Revelation, the reason that we need redemption. Lord, that you are coming again, and that we just have to endure till the end and be willing to cry out and pray and believe. Oh, Lord, give us faith when the enemy rises up against us to speak our convictions, to speak the truth of the gospel. Lord, to never submit to the enemy, but to always submit to the leading of your spirit. Lord, we are asking. Your grace for this. We need it, Lord. We need it. Lord, we are asking individually, come and cleanse our house. Cleanse our temple. Lord, we don't want to let it come to the point where you've got to step in with whips, Lord. Even though you don't want to do it, you'll do it. You'll reprove us, to purify us because you love us, Lord, but we're asking willingly, teach us, lead us, direct us, give us your word, Lord, and I pray that it goes forth into all of Baton Rouge. I know there are many here that know this, Lord, but we've gotta pray because there's a need. We've gotta pray that you raise a people up that understand this and will go out with it because this house is a house of prayer. God, you called your church to be a house of prayer not a house of dancing, not a house of singing, not even a house of preaching primarily. It's a house of prayer, but we will do anything but pray. We will turn our pulpits into parliaments, but we will not pray. We will not trust you to do what only you can do. So God, raise up a people that will pray. God, I pray for your protection over this house because it is a house of prayer. In a land that is but a desert it's a wellspring lord and i pray that it never be blocked up by the enemy lord that you raise up a people to contend for it and to contend for the territory god we are praying that you will do impossible things through the prayers of this people and that you will stir them up again From this day, Lord, we know that there is a warfare in prayer, but sometimes you've got to remind us that there is power in it and that you hear it and you will always step in when your bride cries out and remembers that you are coming. Thank you for listening to Heart of Worship Church Podcast. For more podcasts, sermon videos, daily devotions, great new worship music, and more, Be sure to download our app by searching Heart of Worship Church in the App Store or Google Play or visit us online at heartofworshipchurch.com.